The Halfling's Gem, Chapter 6, Boulder's Gate To the rail! To the rail! cried one voice. Toss some over! agreed another. The mob of sailors crowded closer, brandishing curved swords and clubs. And Trary stood calmly in the midst of the storm, Regis nervously beside him. The assassin did not understand the crew's sudden fit of anger, but he guessed that the sneaky halfling was somehow behind it. He hadn't drawn weapons. He knew he could have his saber and dagger readied whenever he needed them, and none of the sailors, for all their bluster and threats, had yet come within ten feet of him. The captain of the ship, a squat, waddling man with stiff gray bristles, pearly white teeth, and eyes lightened in a perpetual squint, made his way out from his cabin to investigate the ruckus. To me, Red Eye, he beckoned the grimy soldier who had first brought to his ears the rumor that the passengers were infected with a horrible disease, and who had obviously spread the tale to the other members of the crew. Red Eye obeyed at once, following his captain through the parting mob to stand before Entreri and Regis. The captain slowly took out his pipe and tamped down the weed, his eyes never releasing Entreri's from a penetrating gaze. Send him over, came the occasional cry, but each time, the captain silenced the speaker with a wave of his hand. He wanted a full measure of these strangers before he acted, and he patiently let the moments pass as he lit the pipe and took a long drag. Entreri never blinked and never looked away from the captain. He brought his cloak back behind the scabbards on his belt and crossed his arms, the calm and confident action conveniently putting each of his hands in position barely an inch from the hilts of his weapons. "'You should have told me, sir!' the captain said at length. "'Your words are as unexpected as the actions of your crew,' and Trary replied evenly. "'Indeed,' the captain answered, drawing another puff. Some of the crew were not as patient as their skipper. One barrel-chested man, his arms heavily muscled and tattooed, grew weary of the drama. He boldly stepped behind the assassin, meaning to toss him overboard and be done with it. Just as the sailors started to reach out for the assassin's slender shoulders, Entreri exploded into motion, spinning and returning to his cross-armed pose so quickly that the sailors watching him tried to blink the sun out of their eyes and figure out whether he'd moved at all. The barrel-chested man slumped to his knees and fell face down on the deck, for in the blink of an eye, a heel had smashed his kneecap and even more insidiously, a jeweled dagger had come out of its sheath, poked his heart, and returned to rest on the assassin's hip. "'Your reputation precedes you,' the captain said, not flinching. "'I pray that I do it justice,' and Trevor replied with a sarcastic bow. "'Indeed,' said the captain. He motioned to the fallen man. Might his friends see to his aid? He's already dead. And Trary assured the captain. If any of his friends truly wish to go to him, let them too step forward. They're scared, the captain explained. They've witnessed many terrible diseases in ports up and down the Sword Coast. Disease? And Trary echoed. Your companion led on to it, said the captain. A smile widened across Entreri's face as it all came clear to him. Lightning quick, he tore the cloak from Regis and caught the halfling's bare wrist, pulling him up off his feet and shooting a glare into the halfling's terror-filled eyes that promised a slow and painful death. Immediately, Entreri noticed the scars on Regis's arm. Burns, he gawked. 
Aye, that's how the little one says it happens, Red Eye shouted, sinking back behind his captain when Entreri's glare settled upon him. Burns from the inside, it does. Burns from a candle, more likely, Entreri retorted. Inspect the wounds for yourself, he said to the captain. There is no disease here, just the desperate tricks of a cornered thief. He dropped Regis to the deck with a thud. Regis lay very still, not even daring to breathe. The situation had not evolved quite as he had hoped. Toss him over, cried an anonymous voice. Not for Jansen, yelled another. How many do you need to sail your ship? And Trerry asked the captain. How many can you afford to lose? The captain, having seen the assassin in action and knowing the man's reputation, did not for a moment consider the simple questions as idle threats. Furthermore, the stare and Trerry now fixed upon him told him, without doubt, that he would be the initial target if the crew moved against the assassin. I will trust your word, he said commandingly, silencing the grumbles of his nervous crew. No need to inspect the wounds. But disease or no, our deal is ended. He looked pointedly to his dead crewman. I do not mean to swim to Calamport, and Trevi said in a hiss. Indeed, replied the captain. We put in at Boulder's Gate in two days. You find other passage there, and then you shall repay me. And Trevi said calmly, every gold piece. The captain drew another long drag from his pipe. This was not a battle he would choose to fight. Indeed, he said with an equal calm. He turned toward his cabin and ordered his crew back to their stations as he went. He remembered the lazy summer days on the banks of Mare Dalton in Icewindale. How many hours he had spent there fishing for the elusive knucklehead trout or just basking in the rare warmth of Icewindale's summer sun. Looking back on his years in ten towns, Regis could hardly believe the course that fate had laid out for him. He thought he'd found his niche, a comfortable existence, more comfortable still with the aid of the stolen ruby pendant, and a lucrative career as a scrimshender, carving the ivory-like bone of the knucklehead into marvelous little trinkets. But then came that fateful day, when Artemis and Trary showed up in Bryn Shander, the town Regis had come to call home, and sent the halfling scampering down the road to adventure with his friends. But even Drizzt, Bruner, Caterbury, and Wolfgar had not been able to protect him from Entreri. The memories proved small comfort to him as several grueling hours of solitude in the locked cabin slipped by. Regis would have liked to hide away in pleasant recollections of his past, but invariably his thoughts led back to the awful present and he found himself wondering how he would be punished for his failed deception. And Trary had been composed, even amused, after the incident on the deck, leading Regis down to the cabin and then disappearing without a word. Too composed, Regis thought. But that was the part of the assassin's mystique. No man knew Artemis and Trary well enough to call him friend, and no enemy could figure out the man well enough to gain an even footing against him. Regis shrank back against the wall when Entreri at last arrived, sweeping through the door and over to the room's table without so much as a sidelong glance at the halfling. The assassin sat, brushing back his ink-black hair and eyeing the single candle burning on the table. A candle, he muttered, obviously amused. He looked at Regis. You have a trick or two, halfling, 
he chuckled. Regis was not smiling. No sudden warmth had come into Entreri's heart, he knew, and he'd be damned if he let the assassin's jovial facade take his guard down. A worthy ploy, Entreri continued, and effective. It may take us a week to gain passage south from Boulder's Gate, an extra week for your friends to close the distance. I had not expected you to be so daring. The smile left his face suddenly, and his tone was noticeably more grim when he added, I did not believe that you would be so ready to suffer the consequences. Regis cocked his head to study the man's every movement. Here it comes, he whispered under his breath. Of course there are consequences, little fool. I commend your attempt. I hope you will give me more excitement on this tedious journey but I cannot belay punishment. Doing so would take the dare and thus the excitement out of your trickery. He slipped up from his seat and started around the table. Regis sublimated his scream and closed his eyes. He knew that he had no escape. The last thing he saw was the jeweled dagger turning over slowly in the assassin's hand. They made the river Chianthar the next afternoon and bucked the currents with a strong sea breeze filling their sails. By nightfall, the upper tiers of the city of Baldur's Gate lined the eastern horizon, and when the last hints of daylight disappeared from the sky, the lights of the great port marked their course as a beacon. But the city did not allow access to the docks after sunset, and the ship dropped anchor a half mile out. Regis, finding sleep impossible, heard in Cherry stir much later that night. The halfling shut his eyes tightly and forced himself into a rhythm of slow, heavy breathing. He had no idea of Entreri's intent, but whatever the assassin was about, Regis didn't want him even suspecting that he was awake. Entreri didn't give him a second thought. As silent as a cat, as silent as death, the assassin slipped through the cabin door. Twenty-five crewmen manned the ship, but after the long day's sail and with Boulder's Gate awaiting the first light of dawn, only four of them would likely be awake. The assassin slipped through the crew's barracks, following the light of a single candle at the rear of the ship. In the galley, the cook busily prepared the morning's breakfast of a thick soup and a huge cauldron. Singing, as he always did when he was at work, the cook paid no attention to his surroundings. But even if he had been quiet and alert, he probably would not have heard the slight footfalls behind him. He died with his face in the soup. And Jerry moved back through the barracks, where twenty more died without a sound, then went up to the deck. The moon hung full in the sky that night, but even a sliver of a shadow was sufficient for the skilled assassin, and Entreri knew well the routines of the watch. He'd spent many nights studying the movements of the lookouts and preparing himself, as always, for the worst possible scenario. Timing the steps of the two watchmen on deck, he slithered up the mainmast, his jeweled dagger in his teeth. An easy spring of his taut muscles brought him to the crow's nest. Then there were two. Back down on deck, and Cherry moved calmly and openly to the rail. A ship, he called, pointing into the gloom, closing on us. Instinctively, the two remaining watchmen rushed to the assassin's side and strained their eyes to see the peril in the dark until the flash of a dagger told them of the deception. Only the captain remained, and Cherry could easily have picked the lock on the captain's door and killed the man in his sleep. But the assassin wanted a more dramatic ending to his work. He wanted the captain to fully understand the doom that had befallen his ship that night. 
and Trary moved to the door, which opened onto the deck, and took out his tools and a length of fine wire. A few minutes later, he was back in his own cabin, rousing Regis. One sound, and I'll take your tongue, he warned the halfling. Regis now understood what was happening. If the crew got to the docks at Boulder's Gate, they would no doubt spread the rumors of the deadly killer and his diseased friend, making Entreri's search for passage south impossible to fulfill. The assassin wouldn't allow it at any cost, and Regis could not help but feel responsible for the carnage that night. He moved quietly, helplessly, beside Entreri through the barracks, noting the absence of snores and the quiet of the galley beyond. Surely the dawn was approaching. Surely the cook would be hard at work preparing the morning meal, but no singing floated through the half-closed galley door. The ship had stocked enough oil and water deep to last the entire journey to Calimport, and kegs of the stuff still remained in the hold. And Jerry pulled open the trap door and hoisted out two of the heavy barrels. He broke the seal on one and kicked it into a roll through the barracks, spewing oil as it went. Then he carried the other, and half-carried Regis, who was limp with fear and revulsion, topside, spreading the oil out more quietly and concentrating the spill in a tight arc around the captain's door. Get in, he told Regis, indicating the single rowboat hanging in a jigger off the starboard side of the ship. And carry this. He handed the halfling a tiny pouch. Bile rose in Regis's throat when he thought of what was inside the bag, but he took the pouch anyway and held it securely, knowing that if he lost it, Entreri would only get another. The assassin sprang lightly across the deck, preparing a torch as he went. Regis watched him in horror, shuddering at the cold appearance of his shadowed face as he tossed the torch down the ladder into the oil-soaked barracks. Grimly satisfied as the flames roared to life, and Trary raced back across the deck to the captain's door. Goodbye, was the only explanation he offered as he banged on the door. Two strides took him to the rowboat. The captain leaped from his bed, fighting to orient himself. The ship was strangely calm, except for a telltale crackle and a wisp of smoke that slipped up through the floorboards. Sword in hand, the captain threw the bolt back and pulled open the door. He looked around desperately and called for his crew. The flames had not yet reached the deck, but it was obvious to him, and should have been to his lookouts, that the ship was on fire. Beginning to suspect the awful truth, the captain rushed out, clad only in his nightshirt. He felt the tug of the tripwire, then grimaced in further understanding as the wire noose bit deeply into his bare ankle. He sprawled face down, his sword dropping out in front of him. An aroma filled his nostrils, and he fully realized the deadly implications of the slick fluid drenching his nightshirt. He stretched out for his sword's hilt and clawed futilely at the wooden deck until his fingers bled. A lick of flames jumped through the floorboards. Sounds rolled eerily across the open expanse of water especially in the empty dark of night. One sound filled the ears of Entreri and Regis as the assassin pulled the little rowboat against the currents of the Chianthar. It even cut through the din of the taverns lining the docks of Boulder's Gate, a half-mile away. As if enhanced by the unspoken cries of protest of the dead crew and by the dying ship itself, a singular agonized voice screamed for all of them. Then there was only the cackle of fire. Entreri and Regis entered Boulder's Gate on foot soon after daybreak. They had put the little rowboat into a cove a few hundred yards downriver, then sank the thing. Entreri wanted no evidence linking him to the disaster of the night before. It will be good to get home, the assassin chided Regis as they made their way along the extensive docks of the lower city. 
He led Regis's eye to a large merchant ship docked at one of the outer piers. Do you remember the pennant? Regis looked to the flag flying atop the vessel, a gold field cut by slanted blue lines, the standard of Calumport. Calumshan merchants never take passengers aboard, he reminded the assassin, hoping to defuse Entreri's cocky attitude. They will make an exception, Entreri replied. He pulled the ruby pendant out from under his leather jacket and displayed it beside his wicked smile. Regis fell silent once more. He knew well the power of the ruby and could not dispute the assassin's claim. With sure and direct strides revealing that he had often before been in Boulder's Gate, and Trary led Regis to the harbormaster's office, a small shack just off the piers. Regis followed obediently, though his thoughts were hardly focused on the events of the present. He was still caught in the nightmare of the tragedy of the night before, trying to resolve his own part in the deaths of the twenty-six men. He hardly noticed the harbormaster and didn't even catch the man's name. But after only a few seconds of conversation, Regis realized that Entreri had fully captured the man under the hypnotic spell of the ruby pendant. The halfling faded out of the meeting altogether, disgusted with how well Entreri had mastered the powers of the pendant. His thoughts drifted again to his friends and his home, though he now looked back with lament, not hope. Had Drizzt and Wolfgar escaped the horrors of Mithril Hall, and were they now in pursuit? Watching Entreri in action, and knowing that he would soon be back within the borders of Pook's realm, Regis almost hoped that they wouldn't come after him. How much more blood could stain his little hands? Gradually, Regis faded back in, half listening to the words of the conversation, and telling himself that there might be some important knowledge to be gained. When do they sail? Entreri was saying. Regis perked up his ears. Time was important. Perhaps his friends could get to him here, still a thousand miles from the stronghold of Pasha Pook. A week, replied the harbormaster, his eyes never blinking nor turning from the spectacle of the spinning gemstone. Too long, and Cherry muttered under his breath. Then to the harbormaster, I wish a meeting with the captain. Can be arranged this very night. Here. The harbormaster shrugged his accord. And one more favor, my friend, Entreri said with a mock smile. You track every ship that comes into port. That's my job, said the dazed man. And surely you have eyes on the gates as well? Entreri inquired with a wink. I have many friends, the harbormaster replied. Nothing happens in Baldur's Gate without my knowledge. And Trevi looked to Regis. Give it to him, he ordered. Regis, not understanding, responded to the command with a blank stare. The pouch, the assassin explained, using the same light-hearted tone that had marked his casual conversation with the duped harbormaster. Regis narrowed his eyes and did not move, as defiant an act as he'd ever dared to show his captor. The pouch! And Trey reiterated, his tone now deadly serious. I'll gift for your friends. Regis hesitated for just a second, then threw the tiny pouch to the harbormaster. Inquire of every ship and every rider that comes through Boulder's Gate. And Trey explained to the harbormaster, Seek out a band of travelers, two at least, one an elf likely to be cloaked in secrecy, 
and the other a giant yellow-haired barbarian. Seek them out, my friend. Find the adventurer who calls himself Drizduarden. That gift is for his eyes alone. Tell him that I await his arrival in Calimport. He set a wicked glare over at Regis. With more gifts. The harbormaster slipped the tiny pouch into his pocket and gave Entreri his assurances that he would not fail the task. I must be going, Entreri said, pulling Regis to his feet. We meet tonight, he reminded the harbormaster. An hour after the sun goes down. Regis knew that Pasha Pook had connections in Boulder's Gate, but he was amazed at how well the assassin seemed to know his way around. In less than an hour, Entreri had secured their room and enlisted the services of two thugs to stand guard over Regis while the assassin went out on some errands. Time for your second trick? He asked Regis slyly just before leaving. He looked at the two thugs leaning against the far wall of the room, engrossed in some less-than-intellectual debate about the reputed virtues of a local lady. "'You might get by him,' and Trevi whispered. Regis turned away, not enjoying the assassin's macabre sense of humor. "'But remember, my little thief, once outside, you are on the streets, in the shadow of the alleyways, where you will find no friends, and where I will be waiting.' He spun away with an evil chuckle and swept through the door. Regis looked at the two thugs now locked in a heated argument. He probably could have walked out that door at that very moment. He dropped back on his bed with a resigned sigh and awkwardly locked his hands behind his head, the sting in one hand pointedly reminding him the price of bravery. Boulder's Gate was divided into two districts. The lower city of the docks and the upper city beyond the inner wall where the more important citizens resided. The city had literally burst its bounds with the wild growth of trade along the Sword Coast. Its old wall set a convenient boundary between the transient sailors and adventurers who invariably made their way in and the long-standing houses of the land. Halfway to everywhere was a common phrase there, referring to the city's roughly equal proximity to Waterdeep in the north and Calumport in the south, the two greatest cities of the Sword Coast. In light of the constant bustle and commotion that followed such a title, Entreri attracted little attention as he slipped through the lanes toward the inner city. He had an ally, a powerful wizard named Oberon there, who was also an associate of Pasha Pook's. Oberon's true loyalty, Entreri knew, lay with Pook, and the wizard would no doubt promptly contact the guildmaster in Calimport with news of the recovered pendant and of Entreri's imminent return. But Entreri cared little whether Pook knew he was coming or not. His intent was behind him, to Driz Duarden, not in front, to Pook, and the wizard could prove of great value to him in learning more of the whereabouts of his pursuers. After a meeting that lasted throughout the remainder of the day, Entreri left Oberon's tower and made his way back to the harbormasters for the arranged rendezvous with the captain of the Calimport merchant ship. Entreri's visage had regained its determined confidence— he had put the unfortunate incident of the night before behind him, and everything was going smoothly again. He fingered the ruby pendant as he approached the shack. A week was too long a delay. Regis was hardly surprised later that night when Entreri returned to the room and announced that he had persuaded the captain of the Calimport vessel to change his schedule. They would leave in three days. Epilogue 
Wolfgar heaved and strained on the ropes, trying to keep the mainsail full of the scant ocean wind as the crew of the Sea Sprite looked on in amazement. The currents of the Chianthar pushed against the ship, and a sensible captain would normally have dropped anchor to wait for a more favorable breeze to get them in. But Wolfgar, under the tutelage of an old sea dog named Murky, was doing a masterful job. The individual docks of Baldur's Gates were in sight, and the sea sprite, to the cheers of several dozen sailors watching the monumental pull, would soon put in. I could use ten of him on my crew, Captain Dordermont remarked to Drizzt. The drow smiled, even amazed at the strength of his young friend. He seems to be enjoying himself. I would never have put him as a sailor. Nor I, replied Dordermont. I only hope to profit from his strength if we engaged with pirates, but Wolfgar found his sea legs early on. And he enjoys the challenge, Drizzt added. The open ocean and pull of the water and the wind tests him in ways different than he's ever known. He does better than many, Dordermont replied. The experienced captain looked back downriver to where the open ocean awaited. You and your friend have been on but a short journey, skirting a coastline. You cannot yet appreciate the vastness and the power of the open sea. Driz looked at Dordermont with sincere admiration and even a measure of envy. The captain was a proud man, but he tempered his pride with a practical rationale. Dordermont respected the sea and accepted it as superior. And that acceptance, that profound understanding of his own place in the world, gave the captain as much of an advantage as any man would gain over the untamed ocean. Drizzt followed the captain's longing stare and wondered about the mysterious allure the open waters seemed to hold over so many. He considered Dordemont's last words. One day, perhaps, he said quietly. They were close enough now, and Wolfgar released his hold and slumped, exhausted to the deck. The crew worked furiously to complete the docking, but each stopped at least once to slap the huge barbarian across the shoulder. Wolfgar was too tired to even respond. "'We will be in for two days,' Dordemont told Drizzt. "'It was to be a week, but I am aware of your haste. I spoke with the crew last night, and they agreed, to a man, to put right back out again.' "'Our thanks to them, and to you,' Drizzt replied sincerely." Just then, a wiry, finely-dressed man hopped down to the pier. "'What ho, sea sprite?' he called. "'Is Dordemont at your reins?' "'Pellman, the harbormaster,' the captain explained to Drizzt. "'He is,' he called to the man. "'And glad to see Pellman as well.' "'Well met, captain,' Pellman called. "'And as fine a pull as I've ever seen. How long are you to be in port?' Two days.' Dordemont replied, then off to the sea and to the south. The harbormaster paused for a moment, as if trying to remember something. Then he asked, as he had asked every ship that had put in over the last few days, the question and Cherry had planted in his mind. I, I seek two adventurers, he called to Dordemont. Might you have seen them? Dordemont looked to Drizzt, somehow guessing, as had the drow, that this inquiry was more than a coincidence. Driz Duarden and Wolfgar by name, Pellman explained, though they may be using others, one small and mysterious, elf-like, and the other's a giant and as strong as any man alive. Trouble, Dordemont called. Not so, answered Pellman. A message. Wolfgar moved up to Drizzt and heard the latter part of the conversation. Dordemont looked to Drizzt for instructions. 
your decision. Driz didn't figure that Entreri would lay any serious traps for them. He knew that the assassin meant to fight with them, or at least with him personally. We will speak with the man, he answered. They are with me, Dordermont called to Pellman. "'Twas Wolfgar!' He looked at the barbarian and winked, then echoed Pellman's own description. "'As strong as any man alive who made the pull!' Dordermont led them to the rail. "'If there is trouble, I shall do what I can to retrieve you,' he said quietly. "'And we can wait in port for as long as two weeks, if the need arises.' "'Again, our thanks,' Driz replied. "'Surely Ulpar of Waterdeep set us aright.' "'Leave that dog's name unspoken,' Dordemont replied. "'Rarely have I had such fortunate outcomes to my dealings with him. "'Farewell, then. "'You may take sleep on the ship if you desire.' Drizd and Wolfgar moved cautiously toward the harbormaster, Wolfgar in the lead. Drizd searched for any signs of ambush. "'We are the two you seek,' Wolfgar said sternly, towering over the wiry man. "'Greetings!' Pellman said with a disarming smile. He fished in his pocket. "'I have met with an associate of yours,' he explained. "'A dark man with a halfling lackey.' Drizzt moved beside Wolfgar, and the two exchanged concerned glances. "'He left this,' Pellman continued, handing the tiny pouch to Wolfgar, "'and bade me to tell you that he will await your arrival in Calimport.' Wolfgar held the pouch tentatively, as if expecting it to explode in his face." "'Our thanks,' Driz said to Pellman. "'We will tell our associate that you performed your task admirably.' Pellman nodded and bowed, turning away as he did so to return to his duties. But first, he realized suddenly he had another mission to complete, a subconscious command that he could not resist. Following Entreri's orders, the harbormaster moved from the docks and toward the uppermost level of the city, toward the House of Oberon. Driz led Wolfgar off to the side, out of plain view. Seeing the barbarian's paling look, he took the tiny pouch and gingerly loosened the drawstring, holding it as far away as possible. With a shrug to Wolfgar, who had moved a cautious step away, Driz brought the pouch down to his belt level and peeked in. Wolfgar moved closer, curious and concerned when he saw Driz's shoulders droop. The drow looked to him in helpless resignation and inverted the pouch, revealing its contents. A halfling's finger.